Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here this morning here in our, our sanctuary here at uh, Ivy Creek. But also for those of you who are joining us online, we are so glad to have all of you in worship with us this morning. We're thankful for your attendance with us. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me once again to the book of Psalms and to the 20th Psalm, Psalm 20. And uh, by my count, this is our 10th week in the Psalms. And we are just motoring through them. We're all the way to the 20th one. So you do the math. There's 150 psalms. You can figure it out. So um, grateful, grateful for the opportunity to study them forever, how long the Lord continues to lead us uh, in this study. Um, this last week, I found myself driving on I-285. And if I can just make a personal confession, there's few roads in the entire world that I've ever found that I prefer to stay off of more than I-285, but nevertheless, there I was, and that's when it happened. Everything started getting dark, because to my right was an 18-wheeler, and then coming up beside me on my left was another 18-wheeler, and I found myself boxed in. And, and you know what happens when you feel yourself in there, you're in a tunnel and the, the, the light, the sun kind of gets blocked and you're just, you're there. And um, I felt like I was in a tunnel. That's honestly how I felt. If you've ever had that happen to you at driving at 70 miles an hour or so, you know how unnerving that can actually be. When I was younger, I remember... Uh, I remember it happening to me one time on the interstate, and it, and it scared me. I found myself kind of boxed in between these two big rigs. And, and in my ex- inexperience, I would just sort of look back and forth between the two, you know, and, 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 and you're worried about getting a little too far over this way, so you'd jerk back, and, and you'd worry about getting too far that way. And, and so in my inexperience of driving, I was sort of jerking back and forth between the two. And Well, what I learned, though, was is if you can look out in front of you, a ways out in front of both of the rigs and in front of you, and you focus on a point in the road that you start to drive to, suddenly you're the jerking back and forth between the two things kind of slows down, and, and then you're driving to a point that allows you to, to maintain your lane and also to, to stop focusing so much on the left and the right. Now, what I learned was, and what that taught me, was that where I focus my eyes has a direct impact upon where my vehicle goes. Now, that's a good lesson not just for driving, but it's a good lesson for life in general. Where you focus your eyes, what what you pay attention to, what you allow yourself to concentrate on, those things will ultimately impact the drift of your heart. In fact, I would say it this way, the course of the aim of your heart will be directly affected by the things that you allow to be the focus of your life. Jesus tells us that exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, he tells us that the place where our treasure lies, that's going to be the place where our heart also goes. In other words, there's a magnetic pull. It's an overwhelming magnetic pull that where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. But I would say that that also is the case when trouble comes in your life. It's not just the the treasure of your heart, but it's the thing that you're most concerned about in your life will also affect the drift of your heart. 
When difficulty comes, when adversity rears its ugly head, when anxiety begins to creep up inside of you, well, in those moments, what you focus your eyes on will ultimately determine where your heart goes. You will naturally begin to drift toward that which consumes you. That's why I believe that that King Solomon said what he did in Proverbs 4, Verse 23, this is a good verse to remember. Matter of fact, it's a good verse to put to memory in all the different translations because they all offer us a little bit different uh, uniqueness to it. But Proverbs 4.23 in the NIV says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The question is, how do you guard your heart? How do you go about doing that? Well, at least one of the obvious ways that you can guard your heart is by determining what you will allow your eyes to focus on, particularly when trouble comes. Now, trouble is the setting for Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is another of the Psalms of David. And and though we don't know the specific details behind the composition of of Psalm 20, what we do know is that a day of trouble has come upon the king and has come upon the people. And the context reveals that as Israel's king, David was about to head into the battle as the one leading the troops. And what we read here in the first part of this psalm is, is really a prayer that is offered on behalf of the people for their king. And, and then As a a result of that, they pray for his deliverance, they pray for his safety, they pray for his his victory. But then, as we will see, the voice shifts in the middle of the psalm, and we actually hear from the king himself. He declares his confidence in the Lord, and that the Lord would do exactly what the people are praying for, that the Lord would be the one who would deliver him. And then the psalm concludes with an affirmation of God's sovereign power, and, and that affirmation necessitates a certain stance on behalf of the people. That, that gives us a general outline of, of Psalm 20. And I have entitled today's sermon, A Battle Prayer. And this psalm is really a reminder to us that in, in times of great trouble, in, in times of uncertainty, in times of adversity, we must always be careful to properly focus our attention lest we drift in the wrong direction. So with that, let's let's read Psalm 20 this morning. It is, as we see there in the title, it is written to the chief musician, and it is a psalm of David. Hear the word of the Lord. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you according to the, your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have arisen and stand upright. 
Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, there are many of us in this room who would echo this psalm and saying that the day of trouble has come upon us. There are many of us in this room that our hearts are disquieted from knowing what peace feels like and what comfort feels like right now. Some of that is because there are some in this room who are facing some very difficult issues with regard to their health. They're waiting on doctor's reports. They're waiting on surgery. There are some who are recovering. And the recovery is not going as smoothly as they would hope. The day of trouble finds us at times. And Lord, I know that it has found many of my friends and my loved ones in this room. So I pray for them. I know there are others that the day of trouble has come by way of relationships and challenges that have presented themselves with regard to family and friends. The day of trouble has found some through their financial issues that they're facing. Maybe it's through a job, through the struggles that come from not knowing what's going to happen with a a particular job, bills that are piling up. Lord, I pray for them too because the day of trouble is, it comes in many different forms. All of us, are experiencing it in some way, shape, or form. Many of us in our country are experiencing it. The uncertainty of an an election year. The uncertainty of what the future may hold. Many of us know what it's like to feel that, that burning inside of us. But I pray that as we come to this text this morning, and as we seek to hear from your Holy Spirit speaking directly to us through the words that you ultimately authored, that you would be able to speak peace to us in ways that perhaps we had not considered before. Not because it's unique and new, but because it is old, and sometimes we just forget what the Scriptures actually say. So I pray that you would remind us of the ancient truth of this text, which is still just as applicable to our lives today as it was to the people of Israel when it was written. So speak to us through your word this morning. Remind us of the truth of it and continue to draw our hearts toward you. This is my prayer and I pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. The the setting of this psalm is important to kind of note. The people of Israel have gathered in mass and, and they have gathered outside the tabernacle where David, their king, has gone inside to pray and to offer sacrifices to God prior to going into battle. Now, as I mentioned, we don't know the specific occasion which Psalm 20 kind of tells us about, but we don't know who the enemy was specifically at this point. But what we can imagine and what the scriptures go on and give weight to is the fact that this was a customary thing to have happen before the king would lead his people and lead his troops into war. He would go to the tabernacle. He would go in and he would pray to God and he would offer sacrifices on the altar. He would cleanse and purify his heart. He would seek God's favor upon himself and then he would go out and lead his troops 
into battle. The people of Israel are gathered outside while the king is on the inside. And they lift up a prayer on his behalf. That's really the first five verses. And you can tell that by the second person singular pronoun that constantly occurs there. You hear you, you, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord help you, may the Lord answer you. And so the people are praying for their king who is in the tabernacle praying for his own deliverance. And so that gives us the first heading that I want you to see. The first heading of this psalm, the first five verses tell us this, it's the people's prayer for the king. It's the people's prayer for the king. In verse 1, I want you to notice the distinctiveness of this prayer. We'll just look at the distinctiveness of each verse. They ask for something. They ask for something in verse 1, and the first thing that they ask for is that the Lord would answer the king. They ask for the Lord to answer the king. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend or protect you. Scholars have pointed out that the combination of the words answer and, and day of trouble or day of distress and that the, the name God of Jacob, that the combination of those various terms there in verse 1 really, really seem to throw back to the book of Genesis and back to the time of Jacob in Genesis 35 verse 3 when Jacob was talking to his family about going back to Bethel. And, and when he does that, he says, I'm going to go back to Bethel to build an altar, an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me that, in that way which I have gone. So, so scholars point back to here, to, to Psalm 20 verse 1, to say the people of God are looking for the same God of Jacob that answered him every time he called out. They're saying, we want you to be that God of Jacob now. Be that God of Jacob to David who is also praying. Answer him when he comes to you. So the people, the people pray that the Lord will answer the king. Then in verse 2, notice they pray that the Lord will assist the king. They pray that the Lord will assist him. They, specifically, they, they ask the Lord to send help to the king from the sanctuary and to strengthen him out of Zion. They, they are acknowledging that, that the sanctuary in Jerusalem, the tabernacle, which, which sat atop Mount Zion, that that represented where the earthly presence of God resided. And so they recognize, their, their prayer is that the God who, who lives there is the same God who has the power to assist David, to help him, to strengthen him, to, to enable him as he goes into battle. So they ask the Lord to answer the king, to assist the king. Then in verse 3, they ask the Lord will achieve, it will accept the offerings of the king. You notice, notice there in verse 3 that, that you see that, that the king's offerings and sacrifice are mentioned. As the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out, the Israelite practice of presenting sacrifices and offerings before a military campaign was an act of devotion and submission to the Lord. So it was customary for the king to go in and offer sacrifices to God. And the purpose of that was so that he could seek God's favor and consecrate himself for war that he was about to engage in. So the people pray that God will accept the king's offerings and his sacrifices. And that acceptance would necessarily carry with it God's favor and his, and his, uh, his deliverance of the king. So they pray to, that the Lord will answer, that the Lord will assist him, that the Lord will accept his offerings. And then in verse 4, we, we see that they pray that the Lord will achieve 
for the king the desires and the purposes of his heart. That, that God would do for the king what he's asking. That he would achieve for him the desires. And, now there's, there's a way that that connects to accepting the sacrifices that the king offers because that shows that God, God's favor rests upon the king. But in achieving what the king prays for, what, what the people are actually praying is that God, as he makes his plans to go into war, as he listens to the counsel that's being given to him by, the, by those that are surrounding him, allow your, your sovereign power to be that which causes it to come about. In other words, help him to be able to discern your will as he plans and makes his battle plans that he will engage with. So, in, in, in effect, what they're asking is that the Lord would prosper both the deliberations of the king's heart and the plans that he puts in place for battle. And then notice the last part of the people's prayer for the king there in verse 5. It's a prayer that is characterized by anticipation. Anticipation. The people pray with confidence that the Lord will respond and answer their prayer and that he will demonstrate his favor over the king by delivering him in the battle in which he's about to engage and that he would come back victorious. They anticipate that and we know it because they believe that the Lord is the one who will ultimately be the one who brings victory. So their confidence is in the Lord. But they also are, are planning a victory party when the king gets back. You ever, you ever see when, uh, matter of fact, my, my, my son and I were talking about that over this weekend that when there's a team that you're rooting for playing on TV, fill in the blank who that might be, and that team is winning, what's the, what's the pronoun we often say? We are winning, right? And I, I have to remind him sometimes we ain't never got hit as hard as those boys are getting hit. Um, we didn't do anything, but there is a sense in which our victory is tied up in the victory of someone else. Now, this is going to be a little painful for some of us, especially us Braves fans and, and us Falcons fans and even, yes, us Georgia Bulldog fans. How many times have our teams gotten down to the last games in the World Series or in the, the Super Bowl or, or in the, the National Championship game and they get right down to the end and they lose? And we know the crushing defeat that comes with that, right? Because we've already, we, we've, got our, we've got the parade plan, plan you know, we know exactly where we're going to, the victory party's already there. We're going to raise our banner and yet they lose and there's no banner to raise. What I want you to recognize here is that there is no lack of confidence on behalf of these Israelites who are praying for their king who is in the tabernacle on his knees offering sacrifices to God, praying for God's deliverance. There's no lack of confidence on their behalf. They said we will raise our banner because the king is victorious. And do not miss this. They recognize that their victory is tied to his victory. If the king doesn't win, they lose. But if the king wins, they win. So there, there we see the people's prayer for the king, verses 1 through 5. But notice that the pronoun changes in verse 6. It's been you, 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 yours, all the way through verses 1 through 5. But in verse 6, it changes to the, the singular personal pronoun, I. 
And it changes there because I believe that what we see is we get this image of King David emerging from the tabernacle. He's come out from the sanctuary and from his prayers and time of sacrificing. And he emerges and he sees all of these people and they're gathered together. He hears their collective prayers for him. And then he lifts his voice and he responds to their prayers. And we hear, notice the next heading on your outline, point number two. Here's where we hear the king's confidence in the Lord. The king's confidence in the Lord. David says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Now, like the people's prayer, the king's statement here is characterized by a couple of things. Let me point them out to you. First of all, notice his assurance. His assurance. He begins by saying, now I know. Dale Ralph Davis, he acknowledges that that may sound a tad premature since the king has not yet gone out into battle. But he is so convinced that the Lord, that Yahweh will save him, that he depicts it as if it's already happened. It's it's still in the future, but he states it in such a way that his confidence, hey, it's already a done deal. It's, I am assured that God is going to do this. He is going to protect his anointed. David remembered the oil that had ran over his head and down his face and through his beard as the prophet Samuel had told him that he was God's anointed. And so David's confidence is not in himself as the anointed. His confidence is in God who always fulfills his promises and always does what he says he will do. Now, does that mean that David knew everything that was going to happen with the battle he was about to engage in? Does that mean that he was able to see in the future and know exactly how everything was going to turn out with complete clarity? Does his statement here indicate that there were no questions left for which he would desire an answer? No, I don't think that that's what that means at all. Any more than that's what it means with us. But the most important question that David had in his heart had been answered. The most important question was that David knew that his hope and the hope of his people lay in the hands of Almighty God who was on their side. That was the most important thing. And he focused on that. David's statement here in verse 6 reminds us of what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. Remember, Paul is at the end of his life here. Paul knows that that his time is very short. But Paul makes this statement. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Just Just like David, Paul declares... It's not that I am able, it's that God is able. And this is what I know, and this is where my hope lies. This is the security, this is the assurance that I have. So that marks the first thing that we recognize about the king's declaration. But then notice that it's also marked by an agreement. An agreement. Back in verse 1, the people had prayed that the Lord would answer their king. Here in verse 6, the king agrees that the Lord will answer. You see that? And then in verse 2, they prayed that the Lord would strengthen the king out of Zion. And here the king agrees that from his holy heaven, the Lord will indeed give his saving strength. He's agreeing with the prayers of the people. What's absolutely beautiful here is that 
is that there's a unifying nature of this prayer, a prayer of the people lifted on behalf of the king and a declaration of the king that, that comes together into a unified whole. There's an agreement there. And that, that agreement recognizes that, that God is the one who will sustain them in their day of trouble. A battle was definitely imminent and the people knew that their king was going out and he knew that he was going out and was going to face difficulty. But yet now they come and they turn their hearts and their faces to the Lord God in whom they trust and in whom there was their only hope. Now note with me that the change of pronouns happens once again. We went from the you's, verses 1 through 5, to the I of verse 6. And now you'll notice in verses 7 through 9, we get, we get the words we and us. And we come to the last heading of the text that I want to point out for you, and that is it's the people's posture toward the Lord. The people's posture toward the Lord. We started with the people's prayer. We looked at the king's confidence, and now we look at the people's posture. And I want to point out to you that, that many believe that the words of verses 7 and 8, that they're also the words of the king. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I, I think certainly... King David would have uttered these words. But I want you to know that the personal pronoun we there means that it wasn't just him that was saying this. This was all the people. They, they collectively put their voices together from the least all the way to the greatest. And they all acknowledge, look, some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So the first thing that I want you to notice about this is the allegiance that we see. The allegiance that we see there. Verse 7 is perhaps the most well-known verse in, in Psalm 20. Most of you have probably heard it quoted at some other point, but maybe not in its context. But, but here, all of the people are, are saying this. And I like the Hebrew of it because it's a little more choppy than our English smoothed over translations, but the choppiness of it actually gives us its punch, I think. So literally, the Hebrew states, some in chariots, some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Um, the people proclaim the name of their God rather than the number of chariots that, that David had at his disposal, then, rather than the number of men that were there to go and fight. They're not looking at that and saying, here's where all of our confidence is in. Our confidence is not in our armament. Our confidence is not... When I, when I joined the Navy in the, in the late 80s, um, in many respects, that was, I, I don't know if it was the heyday for the Navy, but it was a time when they certainly enjoyed the greatest level of, of uh, people signing up to volunteer that I think that they've experienced in a number of years in the late 80s. And one of the big things was is that we have, we have the greatest ships in the entire world. We have, we have the greatest submarines in the entire world. We have the greatest uh, air fleet in the entire world. And it was it was all about how great and, and, and the confidence of that is. And listen, that, all that is absolutely true. What I want you to know is that is not what the Israelites are bragging about here. They're, they're saying, look, it's not our chariots. It, it's, it's not our number of troops. It is, it is the name of the Lord in which we will boast. In fact, you might even remember that the nation of Israel, they were led out of Egypt, right, where they had been enslaved. Moses led them and he led them across the dry land of the Red Sea. And as they got across the Red Sea, then the walls of that water caved in and, and plunged down upon the Egyptian army that was pursuing them, and they were all drowned. And Moses composed a song 
about that victory in Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. Some in chariots, some in horses. We will proclaim the name of the Lord our God. Think about David. David goes into battle against the biggest, baddest, ugliest, tallest, meanest Philistine that there was out there. And he takes five smooth stones with him in a slingshot. And as he walks into the battle, what did, what did Goliath say to him? He said, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? David says to him, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. David had five smooth stones and a sling. How was he going to take this giant's head? Only one way, by God giving him the victory and giving him Goliath's sword. Some in chariots, some in horses. We will remember, we will proclaim the name of the Lord our God. And I believe those kind of things filter into not just verse 7, but then verse 8, because you notice what verse 8 says? They... They have bowed down and fallen. That's what those other guys who are trusting in in chariots and in troops, that's what they've done. But we, we have risen and we stand upright. You see, here's what we must recognize. The problem is not human resources. The problem is not the taking of necessary precautions and to be able to combat the enemy and to fight the good fight. The problem comes when we begin to trust in those things. The problem comes when we stop running to the tower that is our safety. The Bible tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And we are to run into him in order to find our safety and our salvation. Those who trust and and have allegiance to their own military power or to their own ingenuity, or or their confidence is in their bank account, or their confidence is in in their abilities to, to, to do things. Well, those people, according to the Scriptures, are ultimately, ultimately doomed to fail. Those who trust in the Lord, the Scriptures say they will be the ones who rise up and who stand firm. And as as one writer has put it, our whole lives seem to be experiments in learning not to trust in artificial supports. Again and again, we have to learn that only the nail-scarred hands of the resurrected Jesus are adequate to hold us up. So the posture of the people reveal their allegiance, and then it is further characterized by a final appeal. In verse 9, 
It forms the conclusion of, and, and sort of the final plea of the people. And it draws everything together. It, it, it puts the intercessory prayer of the people from the first five verses as well as the king's own personal declaration there in verse 6 as well as then the people's collective affirmation together in verses 7 to 8 all together into an appeal for God's sovereign deliverance. And the English translations vary a little bit depending on the version you're reading, but the end result is the same. The plea of the people in verse 9 is that the Lord will save and his salvation would come by way of him saving their king. The salvation of the people, as we mentioned earlier, is directly tied to the success of the king. And so they plead with God to hear them in their appeal for his salvation. And what you and I must realize is that's actually the message of the gospel. You see, my only hope and your only hope is, is tied to the success of our king, the great king, the Lord Jesus. His victory is our victory. His triumph is our triumph. We have nothing that we can bring to the table to assist him in our salvation. You know what you and I bring to the table? Sin. We, we bring condemnation. We bring, we bring depravity to the, to, to, to the whole equation. That's what we bring. Jesus, on the other hand, brings a perfect, sinless, holy life that he then takes upon himself all of the sin, all of the guilt that we bring to the table. He takes upon himself. And, and he absorbs within himself the wrath of God poured out that should have been poured out on us. Jesus Christ has poured out upon him. He suffered the penalty that you and I rightly deserve. And by all accounts, it appeared as though he had been defeated. You remember when they took his body down and put it in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, all of the women who had been around the tomb, they, they, they scattered. All of his disciples had been dispersed. In fact, two of them were on the road to Emmaus and they were, they were kicking the can slowly down the road, talking to one another about how they had hoped that things would be different. It appeared as though their king had been defeated. But as the scriptures declare, and as we just sang earlier, on the third day, Jesus arose victorious over the grave. He vanquished death. He defeated Satan. And by his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, Jesus Christ gives us the victory. And by faith in him, we can raise our banner. By faith in him, we can stand with the upright. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And the importance of that victory is first and foremost seen in our salvation, yes, in the hope that we will one day be brought into his, his presence and gifted with eternal life, yes. But brothers and sisters, we cannot miss and we cannot overlook the importance of what Christ has done and the victory that he has won for us when we go through our day of trouble, when we go through our hardships, when we go through our adversity, when our anxieties begin to form up within us, we cannot dismiss the fact that Jesus' victory is still the very thing that we need to focus on. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. In times of anxiety and adversity, God's people must remember to look to our King Jesus who has triumphed over his foes and given us our victory in his name. That is our hope. 
This past Monday night, we had a deacons meeting here at the church, and, and, and during that meeting, I shared with them some of the challenges and, and, and various um, bumps in the road, maybe would be the best way to put it, that we've experienced over the last six, seven months in dealing with our response to this coronavirus and the pandemic. In fact, some of the pastors and I, we have this running joke among us that none of us ever signed up for and took uh, how to pastor through a pandemic class in seminary. We missed that one. They didn't promote it heavily. Fact is, all of us are learning on the fly and all of us are trying to navigate through uncharted waters. And to be completely honest with you, there have been some very disheartening moments along the way. Um, as many of you have no doubt experienced in your own life in various ways. It's not easy to switch gears midstream and keep your sanity at the same time. It's not easy. You add that to the fact that right now, every news outlet that you turn to, is con you're confronted with the continued polarization of our nation. Civil Discussion has been replaced by yelling, violence and anarchy fill our streets. Anyone who has an opposing opinion has to be canceled and summarily silenced. All the while, the founding principles upon which our nation was built appear to be thrown out and discarded like yesterday's newspaper. And the displays of depravity and the disregard from human life from conception all the way to natural death as well as many other Christian principles, well, that disregard is alarming. And for many like me, it's disheartening. Recently, I heard, I heard it said that they couldn't wait for 2021 to come. I couldn't get here fast enough. And I understand what's meant by that statement. I mean, such a statement looks down the road, right? Looks down the road in hopes of finding a point that will be better than the one that we're in right now. The unfortunate reality is that we're not promised that 2021 is going to present us with any better situation than we're facing right now. Here's the point that I want to make for you with regard to what we've learned in Psalm 20. You see, I believe that the Scriptures tell us and that the Holy Spirit confronts us and calls us to take our eyes off of the challenges and the adversities that surround us. I do not mean that we ignore them. I do not mean that we dismiss them as unimportant. I do not mean that we don't pay attention to them. I do mean that we don't allow those things to become so influential in our lives that we are constantly drifting toward them. And that we're jerking between them and the other things that come into our lives. That we find ourselves in a tunnel that we don't feel like we can get out of. Bouncing around like a car boxed in between two big rigs on the interstate. Brothers and sisters, we must not allow our circumstances to have a greater pull upon our lives than they ought to. Furthermore, since we're called to live by faith and we're called to live that way one day at a time, then, then we must resist the temptation to just simply wish everything away and go to sleep and let me wake up next year and things will be better. Look, I do think we need to focus our attention out in front of us, but for many of us, I think we need to focus it on something different than what we are focusing on. 
The simple fact is, is that if our hope and our security and our confidence lies in our circumstances, we will now and forever be tossed around, shaken up, and turned inside out. And therefore, just like the people of Israel and just like King David, we are called to face our circumstances, but we are called to do so with a full and faith-filled attention turned to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The scriptures command us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Our confidence and our hope are in the great king who has already gone to battle for us. He went down in the day of trouble and he waged his warfare against Satan and he crushed the serpent's head. And even though it cost him his life, the Lord Jesus defeated death. The scriptures declare that it was impossible for death to hold him. And so on the third day, he rose again to life and in triumph and in victory. And now having ascended back to heaven, back to his rightful throne, he sits at the right hand of God with the name that is above every name that according to Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess his name to the glory of God, of God the Father. And what that reminds us is that unlike the king here in Psalm 20, our great king does not stand in on the brink of a battle that is unfought. Rather, our king is seated at the right hand of God Almighty and having already won the victory for us. And here's the best part. Our victory is tied to his. If you are a blood-bought child of the king, you are already victorious. You can go ahead and raise your banner. You're not awaiting a victory. You've already been told the victory is won. It is yours through Christ Jesus. The question is... question is, are you a blood-bought child of the king? You see, raising your banner will do you no good if you're raising it in honor of the wrong victor because it will be no victor in all. The Bible tells us that if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what it means to come to Christ by faith, to confess him as your Savior and your Lord. If you have never done that, if you remain apart from King Jesus, then I would invite you to trust in him today. They're going to put a phone number up on the screen. If you're listening at home, maybe you come across this sermon sometime later in the archives. and You want to talk with someone about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Would you call that number? But we don't have some sort of magical formula that we're going to present to you. All we're going to do is take you to the scriptures and show you what the scriptures say. Give you the best possible news that you could have ever received. And that is, is as a sinner, you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ confessing your sin, being forgiven of it, being relieved of the responsibility of it because he takes it upon himself. And in response to that, gives you all of his righteousness. So that when God the Father sees you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son. 
That is available to all who will humble themselves before him. And I hope that you will take the opportunity to call one of us here at the church so that we might be able to respond back to you and talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. For those of you who that is your testimony, if you are a Christian and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then I remind you once more as I close where your hope and your confidence ultimately lies. It cannot lie anywhere else. In times of anxiety and in times of adversity, and all of us know what that looks like right now, God's people must remember to look to our King Jesus who has triumphed over our foes and over his foes and has given us our victory in his name. As the words of that song say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the victory that you have secured for us through your death, through your burial, and through your resurrection. Thank you that you are the victorious king. We thank you that you no longer need prayers on your behalf for God to make you victorious. You have been victorious. And because of that, then we stand assured that we can raise our banner. We can stand with the upright, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Help us not to trust in chariots or in horses or in troops or in our bank accounts or in our abilities, or in our ingenuities, or in our ability to argue with others, but help us to trust in you. And then as we do, give us the humility to live our lives in such a way that we would bring honor and glory to your name. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.